Winsome is about seeing our role in the story of God and about seeing people come to know Jesus. Old school, if you're old school uh, church people here today, uh, it's about evangelism is what we're talking about. We, we're not really on that track anymore. We don't usually talk about that word that much anymore. And that's really okay because that word has a lot of connotations for us that make everybody nervous. But what we're talking about in Winsome is seeing people come to know Jesus. We want to see the city, amen, come to know Jesus. We're not happy just to say, I found what works for me in a relationship with Christ. We believe what works for us in a relationship with Christ is what other people need to make their lives work in a relationship with Christ. And it's not about converts. I need to keep coming back around that. It's not about converts. This series is not about numbers or notches on a belt or decisions on a piece of paper. That's really not what Winsome is about. Winsome is about living a contagious life. Winsome is not about you and me going, okay, who can I go out and, 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 and lead to Jesus? Who can I get out to make a decision for Christ? That's really not the mentality. The mentality is, I want to live a contagious life, the kind of life that makes the people around me ask questions about my life. Because when people start asking questions about our life, guess what? We have the perfect opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And that's really what this city needs. We talked last week about the irreducible minimum, and I don't know if you're the kind of person that goes back and watches the weeks that you miss. You know, in, in normal church life in America, people don't come every week anymore. That was old school. I didn't have a choice growing up. Anybody live in those days? You went every week. It didn't matter. You're sick. I don't care. Get up. You're going to Sunday school. And um, that's just the way it was. Nowadays, it's kind of more like two times a month, kind of like what people do. And so I know that everybody's not here on every week. There's a lot of stuff going on in life. But if that if you missed last week, can I ask you, please go back and watch the talk. Please go back and wrap your heart around the irreducible minimum. We talked about what it is at the end of the day that people just can't live without. And for us, the irreducible minimum is this. People need Jesus. More than anything else, people need Jesus. I know there are people in the house right now, you need a job, and that's a big, big deal, but not more than Jesus. People need friends, yes, but not more than Jesus. What people need at the end of the day, the, the richest people in town and the poorest people in town, they need the same thing, and we need Jesus. We're living in a city, we talked about, where people are searching. People are open, people are hungry, and people are hurting. And some of you came today for that very reason. You showed up at Passion City Church today because you're searching for something. You're open to something. You, you didn't walk through the door going, okay, I don't, I don't believe whatever's going on here. You walk through the door going, I've heard about your church, and if there's something going on there, I want to know what it is. Maybe some of you came through the door because you're hungry, and everything else just hasn't cut it. Maybe you're here today, and you're like, I'm hurting, and I need something bigger than what I found already. And we believe that irreducible minimum is this, people need Jesus. And when we get down to that irreducible minimum, something happens, something shifts in us. You're like, how do I know if I really agree with you? Because there's levels of agreement. There's the, I, I agree with what you said, it makes sense logically. There's the, I agree with what you, make, you said, it makes sense spiritually. There's the, I, I agree with what you said because, you know, I've been in church all my life and I know that's right. And then there's the other level where you're, you're really, something's pumping in your heart and you're like, I really believe what you're talking about because I've had it all and lost it all. And without Jesus, it doesn't matter. And when that clicks in our hearts, something else shifts in us, and we get a clear 
and compelling purpose for our lives. We understand in that moment, if nothing else, we want to make sure people get Jesus. And as Passion City Church, that's our future. And that's what our heartbeat must be to the world. Now, I want to take a little survey here, and it's kind of goofy. I was going to do it last week and talk myself out of it, but I, I want to try it this week. I want to just do a little quick survey. Passion City Church this week is going to be five years old this week from our official opening public gathering. Um, we're going to be five years old. I, I, okay, that's good. Awesome. Yeah. We, we met for about a year and a half before the public gathering, so I don't know how old that makes us. And then when we met, we didn't meet again for another month. And so I don't really know how old we are because we're kind of like dog years. You have to do certain math to add it all up. But um, our first public gathering was at the Tabernacle five years ago coming up this week. Maybe next Sunday, I think, or something like that, or Saturday. It's crazy. And then somewhere along the way, you came in the story. Anybody at the first gathering at the Tabernacle? Okay, see how powerful that was? I mean, people loved it so much that they, they never came back. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> Thank you to the nine of you who stayed with us. That's encouraging. But the rest of you have joined our story somewhere along the way since that gathering. And so of those of you who consider Passion City Church home base for you, and, um, and I know it's kind of a complicated question in Atlanta, Georgia in 2014. You're like, you mean my morning church home or my evening church home? You mean like my... My get my praise on church home or my where my tradition came from church home. You mean where my family goes or where I go? Yeah, I don't know. Work that out. But if you consider this your a church, your church family, and you came to Passion City Church from another church tradition, meaning from church to this church, could you just raise your hand? Hold it up just for a second. Just hold as high as you can just for a second. So you came from another church to Passion City Church. Todd Peterson, you're not playing along. <laughs> this is all of us, bro. Um, can you just look around for a second? Okay, it's pretty powerful. Okay, that's great. So if you consider Passion City Church your church family and you came to Passion City Church because somebody told you about Jesus and you came alive in faith, you became a follower of Jesus and you are a part of Passion City Church as a follower of Jesus, you've never been in this zone before, can you raise your hand really high and hold it up for us? Awesome, so great. Wow. That's the sermon. Who knew? I should have done it last week. Saves time. That's the message. That's the message. We are all here and we love it. We were already in church before we got here. And this morning, 10 o'clock, pretty sparse on people who've come to know Jesus because of us. You see, what's going to happen if we're not careful is we're going to get in a revolving door of church. And what we're going to do is we're going to cycle through them kind of like we do through everything else in our lives. And at the end of the story, when we get to heaven, our story of faith is going to be, well, for a while I went to this church, and that was amazing, and then this other church kind of got going, and I went to that church, and that was kind of amazing, and then these other people started this church, and there's kind of a new chapter of our lives, and that was amazing, and then, well, then they stopped doing what I really wanted them to do at that church, and so we stopped going to that church and started going to this other church because we thought that church was going to be more of what we wanted it to be, and then at the end of our day, we're all going to get to heaven and go, what's your story? My story is, man, I... I was a part of about seven amazing churches, and it was so incredible. 
And when we get to heaven, we want our story to be, I understood the irreducible minimum. And you see all these people right here? All these people are in heaven because I got it. All these people are in heaven because I understood that people need Jesus. And I asked God to empower my life by the Holy Spirit of God to be his instrument in my generation to see the city come to know Jesus. And once that gets hold of our lives, something shifts inside of us. Paul is giving us our major text in this winsome series and sort of where we got to play on words for the title in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And this is what Paul writes, beginning, if you look with me down to verse 19. He said, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Okay, he's gotten a hold of what, of what the mission is. I want to win as many as possible. So he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew so that I could win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so that I could win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul's irreducible minimum gave him a clear, a compelling purpose for life. And, and it was this for Paul. These were his words. I want to do all things to reach all people so, so that by all means, at the end of the day, I might save some people, not, not conversion necessarily, not numbers on a piece of paper, but the kind of a life, a contagious life that we'll see that leads people to want to know who is this Jesus that's changing your world. And this is the beauty of it for me and you, because if this was just like an evangelism message, which was, okay, everybody, who feels bad about the little hand raising thing? All right, we got to get busy. We got to get some work done. We're going to get people trained and equipped. We're going to send you out two by two, and we're going to go out and reach some people. So you see, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't wear as well as, here's what's in it for me and for the city. God, I want you to do something so amazing in my life that my life actually changes. To the degree that people notice my life changing and say, I want what's changing your life. Because I'm searching, I'm open, I'm hungry, and I'm hurting, and I'm watching you, and something's happening to you. I want what you have. And when that happens, the second part of this message kicks in. And we kind of tipped our hand this way last week, but didn't get all the way there. What happens when that is the reality for me and you is we have an irrefutable argument. So we know what the irreducible minimum is, but then we have an irrefutable argument. And I, when I say irrefutable argument, I'm not talking about we're arguing people to Jesus. That's not the point. I'm just saying that we have an undeniable story when Christ starts changing our lives. And the reason a lot of times we don't share our faith is because we don't know what to say to people, right? 
How many of you are a little nervous, you don't have to raise your hand, about opening a conversation of faith because you don't know what questions people are going to ask. You, you don't know what philosophical background they're coming from. You don't know what conundrum of the scriptures they're going to throw at you that you're not sure how you're going to answer. And so you're just like, you know, I'll just kind of do my thing and they'll do their thing. But here's the beauty of it all. If we are being changed by Christ, we have an irrefutable argument for the world. We talked last week about barbecue. It was good for the barbecue restaurants of the city, by the way. I've gotten a lot of feedback from different places. Who had barbecue last week? You know, it kind of goes in the brain and you just can't stop thinking about it, right? And so that was an amazing thing. And the point of it is this. I love barbecue, and that's an irrefutable argument. Barbecue rules, <laughs> and that's an irrefutable argument. A perfectly smoked brisket rocks the world, and that's an irrefutable argument. You're like, no, no, it's not. You know, and we went down the whole road and somebody told me there's a restaurant here that has vegan barbecue. And I'm like, that is not barbecue. Vegan barbecue is not barbecue. That, that's something comprised of other components that did not come from a pig or a cow. And therefore it is not technically barbecue. But it's vegan barbecue, and you know, vegans have to live in sort of a weird world anyway to kind of make it all work out. So I understand, oh, I'm enjoying my barbecue today. No, you're not. You're enjoying something that is made out of soy products, okay? That's what you're enjoying. And I, and I want you to enjoy it. You'll live longer than the rest of us, but we will have enjoyed our lives of barbecue. We will have enjoyed our lives of barbecue. And if by some reason, if by some reason you fall off a mountain and die a vegan, this is a sad life. This is a sad epitaph. <laughs> I was out running my fourth marathon and a guy came through the intersection and I was done and boom, and I was a vegan the whole way. Now that's great. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm only partially kidding about all that. But, but it's an irrefutable argument. No one can tell me I don't love barbecue. Well, I don't believe in barbecue. You know, the Bible says we're not supposed to eat things with hooves that are split. Swines are bad. It's like, grace of God is huge, brother. <laughs> and I promise you there will be baby back ribs at the wedding feast of the lamb. It's on the menu. No, oh, I, I just don't know about it. I, just don't, I, don't, I don't know about barbecue. Well, it's great. You cannot talk me down from barbecue. Don't even try. Oh, we've got an expert. I don't care. And see, an irrefutable argument is what's true in you. And when something becomes true in you, you become God's agent to speak into the irreducible minimum of people's lives, which is that they need Jesus. And if Jesus is changing you, you're ready to be a part of that plan. Let me give you a couple things today I will encourage you in this way. Number one, if you have a story of grace, you have a story of grace to tell. Now, if you don't have a story of grace, you don't have a story of grace to tell. So, so you're okay for now. You can just kind of coast through the Winsome series, and hopefully you'll find a story of grace in this series. Maybe even in this morning, you'll meet Jesus right here and right now, just like you are. But if you have a story of grace then you have a story of grace to tell. If you love barbecue, then you have a barbecue story. And we all have a story that we love to tell. 
You invite your friends over to dinner, you meet some guys for lunch, and you have a story to tell. And we mostly know what other people's story is. They're going to tell it over and over and over. It's about the thing they love. And if we have that story of grace, we have a story of grace to tell. The main text today is 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul, who was writing to us in Corinthians and writing to these believers at the church in Corinth, he's writing again to this young man that he's been pouring into as a mentor. And this is what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is Paul's story, the guy who said, I want to become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might win some people. Where did that start kicking around inside of him? He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance in unbelief. Isn't that powerful? So he had a moment where grace entered into his story. Look at verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. Can you say that with me? Christ Jesus came into the world. Let's say that again. Just I want to get it in our mouths. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look what Paul says. Of whom I am the worst. And so we know there's no ranking in the kingdom But if Paul had to add it up, he said, I was at the back of the line, people, when Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He knew how far down he was. But look in verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. What very reason? The fact that I was at the back of the line and Christ came into the world to save sinners and then he reached all the way back to the back of the line where I was the worst of all possible sinners. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And then he just breaks down into some praise because of it. You know you've got the irreducible minimum when you can barely tell your story without breaking down in thanks and praise to God, no matter how many times you've told your story. And so he breaks it down in verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I've got a story to tell. I have a story to tell. I was the worst. I was a blasphemer. I mean, that's pretty big time. I was a violent man. I was a persecutor of Jesus' followers. I was so far away from hope, but he just abundantly poured out his mercy and his grace on my life. And when that happened to him, he knew I've got a story to tell. And it is an irrefutable argument because I know who I was and I know who Christ has made me to be. 
You know, I think we get stuck in the zone of saying, well, good for Paul. He was an apostle, for crying out loud. He wrote, you know, most of the New Testament. He ought to be telling people about Jesus. I'm just a regular guy working a bank. You know, I'm not real articulate. It's not really, I don't feel like I've got this great calling on my life to go out and be an evangelist. I'm just a regular mom in, 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 the, in the pickup line at school. You know, I'm just a normal person. But hey, every one of us has had something supernatural happen to us in Christ. So every one of us, therefore, has a supernatural story to tell about what happened to us in Christ. And that continual working of salvation is our story for the world. That's what 2 Corinthians says when Paul kind of takes it away from his role and tells us how amazing our role is in faith. It says in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then did what? And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, that he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. So look at verse 20. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so then he puts words in our mouths. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what is our message? God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to see how beautiful this is. So the baseline of the story is the gospel of what Jesus did, not our life. Our life is not the baseline of the story. So the bottom line of the story isn't, look at me, I was the worst of sinners, and now look at who I am, therefore put your faith in Christ. No, the baseline is God made Jesus, who was without sin, to be sin for us, so that in Christ, by faith, we who had sin might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the baseline of the story. But then our story is, I know, and that happened to me. Let me tell you how that happened in my life and now how that's changing my life. So the baseline stays the same. But you know what? Everybody needs a way in to the gospel. It's very rare that you're going to walk into your office one day and somebody's going to stand up in their cubicle and go, hey, does anybody in here know what I need to do about this guilt thing I've got? Hello? That, that could happen, but it's going to be rare. Hopefully you'll be ready when it does. You know, like, yes, I, I, I can help with that. But most people are going to come into the gospel through a story that they're going to overhear at a lunch table and they're going to go, your marriage got put back together? How did that happen? Well, it's a miracle. I, I know, it'd be a miracle. It'd be a miracle if mine got put back together. How did it happen? Well, Jesus has been working in me. And he did some things in me I couldn't do by myself. And he's paved a way for there to be a future that, I'm telling you, I could not have gotten to that future without Jesus. And no one is going to tell you in that moment. Nobody's reply is going to be, oh, I was, I was interested as you had a miracle and your marriage got put back together and then you said, Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus, so thank you, appreciate it, God bless you. They're going to go, hmm, because you have an irrefutable argument. If you have a story of grace, you have a story of grace to tell. The second thing that's pretty powerful in this to me is this, that you don't have to know it all 
to be able to put all you know or all you have in what you know. You don't have to know it all to place all you have in what you know. Praise God. <laughs> is anybody nervous about the fact that you, you can't explain everything there is to explain about God? That, that's a tricky place to be in in a very um, contentious world, right? So I'm going to tell somebody my story of grace, and they're going to say, well, well explain the dinosaurs to me. And I'm gonna, I was just trying to tell you that I was like the worst of sinners, and Christ has really shown me some amazing grace. I know, but there were more people in the Garden of Eden. I know there were. There's some more people in there besides Adam and Eve. How did they get in there? There are more people in there? They haven't told us that yet at Passion City Church. I don't know. Let me go check on that, and I'll get back to you tomorrow. But see, here's the thing. You don't have to know everything there is to know. You don't have to know it all to place all that you have in what you know. And this is one of the, the, the lies the enemy, I think, always wants to get us stuck in. Listen, I, I've, I've talked to every kind of person alive. I mean, every kind of argument, every kind of intellect, every kind of presupposition, every kind of everything you can possibly imagine. And sometimes, you know, it's a dead end, and sometimes there's a little open conversation, and sometimes people kind of go, oh, you're telling me something I really haven't thought about. But look, that doesn't in any way, shape, or form affect my irreducible argument. It doesn't change the fact that I love barbecue. It doesn't change anything about the fact that Christ is literally changing my heart. Just because I can't answer somebody's philosophical questions about whatever it is that they're struggling with in life. In John chapter 9, there's this beautiful story. I'll summarize it really quickly for us because I don't want to get too bogged down in it. But I, it's kind of like a great reminder to me all the time. In this story, there was a man who was born blind. And <clears throat> Jesus came to him and he asked him if he wanted to see. Do you remember this story? And Jesus spit on the ground and, and the guy, and he made mud and he put it on the guy's eyes and he told him to go and wash in the pool. Uh, and so the guy went and washed and when he washed the mud off his eyes, he could see. Do you remember this story? And so the guy's freaking out. You know, he's like seeing. And, and then people started freaking out because the guy was seeing it. And then the religious rulers of the day started freaking out because Jesus had the power to change somebody's life. And when they, they heard about it, they thought, okay, we got to shut Jesus down. They found an angle, which was amazing. In fact, it's kind of interesting. If you read John 9, it says some of the people, when the guy started seeing, said, that's the guy that's been blind from birth. And look at him. He can see. And then other people said, I don't know if that's him or not. I really can't tell. It looks a little bit like him, but it might not be him. People don't want to see the power of God sometimes and they couldn't even see that the guy was blind and now he can see again. I'm not sure if it's him or not. Then the Pharisees said, we don't know if it's him or not, but I know one thing, Jesus did this on the Sabbath and you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. So it's like you got a guy who can see and they're concerned about the guy who can't be Jesus because he did something on the wrong day. You see how, how complicated it is just to tell your story of grace to the world? So the guy's like, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what day it is. That, that's not important to me. Hello, I'm looking at everybody. This is amazing. No, 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 no. This can't be amazing because it happened on the wrong day. So they called him in, started questioning the guy. What happened to you? Who was this guy? Where did he come from? What did he say to you? What did he do? They called his parents in. Is this your son? Is this really him? Can, can we get DNA evidence? Is this really the kid that was born blind? And now he sees. Everybody he was trying to find an angle. And so the last they call this guy back in, I, I love this. I think it's verse 25. Verse 24 says, the second time they summoned the man who had been blind and they said, give glory to God because we know this man is a sinner. You know, they were been all stuck in, you know, who sinned his parents or him. And we got all kinds of complications. And here's his answer. Verse 25. He replied, 
Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. That's Jesus for healing him on the wrong day. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Irrefutable argument. I don't know what day of the week you're supposed to heal on. I don't know how this guy got here. I can't explain explain the Trinity. I don't know everything about incarnation. I don't really know the full gospel story. I haven't seen the cross yet. I can't explain to you a whole lot of things and facts. Here's what I do know, guys. If you're pushing me to the edge of my story today, here's my story. Whether this guy was a sinner or not for healing me on the wrong day, don't know the answer to that. I just know this. I was blind, but now I see. There's two things in this I love. It's okay to say I don't know. What works is saying this is what God is doing in my life. No, I don't know exactly how your view of evolution and my view of a God who creates all fit together. I don't really know the answer to that. But I do know this. I know Jesus is changing my life. And I know enough about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to put all of my hope for my whole life in him. Even if I'm not yet ready to explain every single inch of the God of mystery who runs the universe and can't solve everybody's philosophical dilemma, it doesn't matter. I've got an irrefutable argument. I was blind and now I see. Paul said, I was a mess and he poured mercy on my life. That's the change that leads to people asking, how did you change? And sometimes our conversations work and sometimes they don't. I think I told you this story, but we got on a plane in South Africa once flying between two cities, Durban and Cape Town. And we were flying up at the front of the plane, but it was three and three, and Shelly was on the aisle. I was in the middle. I think Matt and Tomlin were behind me. We had a bunch of our team traveling. There was one seat by the window, and everyone's on the plane but this one seat. And I'm just praying like we're always praying, right? I hope, hope this person doesn't come because I'm over by the window. We got extra room. It's going to be so good. I don't want to be in the middle, you know, squeezed in. And so I'm praying, Lord, don't let them come. Don't let them come. Hope they miss their flight. You know, they can get another flight. You know, it's fine. They can work it out. Your plan and purpose will prevail no matter what. <laughs> and it's, eventually this guy comes in. And he's a pretty slick looking dude. And he comes in and the flight attendant says, I'm sorry, you're not, there's no overhead room anymore. Because, um, you know, everybody brings all their luggage on the plane now. And um, which I kind of started thinking, maybe they should put some seats down in the luggage area. And I'd like to go sit down there because apparently all the luggage is up, you know, in the top. So I'm thinking maybe we could refit the luggage area and put some sofas down there or something. So he comes in. She says, you can't put your back. He gets distressed. Um, and he's like, it's a little bit of a moment. And then he says, so they go out into the jetway and they, there's something happening out there. And then he comes back in and he, he, thro- oh, he throws his leather coat on the seat, takes his bag with the flight attendant. They go out, comes back in and he's got, he's holding in his hand this configuration right here. That's how much he's got in his hand. He's got a paperback book, a phone, and I'm not sure what else. And he sits down, kind of like, ah, you know, that's crazy. Stuff's in the back of the seat pocket, his paperback book, his phone, and a wad of cash the size of a brick. (laughs) No, I'm not exaggerating. This thick, with rubber bands around it, both ways, in the seat back. And I'm like... (laughs) He gets his coat, and he just puts his head on the armrest. It's been probably a big 
to do to get on the plane. And he just puts his head on this thing and kind of like takes a nap. And I'm like... <laughs> so we take off. And a few minutes later, he kind of wakes up. And, you know, the little ding thing happens. And they're serving some, you know, refreshments. And he wakes up. And I said, hey, I, I don't want to bug. But um, there's like a, a, a load of cash, like, in the, in the thing. He goes, yeah, it's my gambling money. It's like... I'm so glad you didn't miss this flight. <laughs> we talked for one hour, wall to wall. I wish you were there. Shelly would tell you about it. Um, Matt and, and Chris could hear parts of it. At some point I said, do you mind if I just hold your money? And um, <laughs> so I'm holding the money. You know, it's, it's, ten, it's like tens of thousands of dollars. And so I, I leaned over to Matt at the, in the back and I said, hey, this is your per diem for when we get to Cape Town. You know, and he's just like, I don't want to touch that. What is that, the offering from last night? I was like, no, it's this guy's gambling money. <laughs> I won't tell you the whole story, but I could give you a lot of details about it. The book was uh, Deepak Chopra. The guy had almost memorized it from cover to cover, dog-eared. And we talked for two hours about how do, you, how do you communicate with God? How do you talk to God? How, how do you find peace in your life? And I'd say, well, you know, for me, it's through a relationship with Jesus. And I would explain that for a little bit. He'd go, oh, that's, that's great. You know, have you ever, when you meditate, do you ever close the loop of your fingers and let that energy just cycle inside of you until you can really feel that connection and presence with the universe? I'm like, no, I don't do that. But I do have God's spirit in me, which is a miraculous work of God that allows me to sense and feel that I belong to God. And through his living word and through Christ, I communicate with God all the time anywhere I am. He said, that's amazing. Well, what Deepak says is this. And then he quotes me off about 80 verses. And I'm like, okay, I can do 80 verses. Well, what, what Jesus, you know, and we're just back and forth and back and forth. And, and this guy is, he's a professional gambler. And he, he goes around giving speeches to people about positive energy and living. He got a book and a website and the whole deal. It's crazy. We got to the airport. He opened his bag, which was that baggage claim, and showed me some flip charts of how I can get more aligned with the powers of the universe. And we walked away, and I was like, that was crazy. And I don't know what happened, because every bit of my Jesus was coming back with some version of his energy. And then he said, hey, if you guys are free while you're doing your Christian event in the stadium in Cape Town as a pastor, which I told him 18 times and my follower of Jesus, if you're free on Thursday, come to the strip club. It's the best one in South Africa. And I've got cash for everybody that you want to bring. And I'm like, awesome. Awesome. So I got his card and we exchanged some emails and it was beautiful. He, he's not yet come to see Jesus. But I believe he needs him. And the fact that he had another way didn't make me go, oh, I'm just going to stop talking to him. Because I've got an irrefutable argument. And I'm not afraid to tell anybody that I was blind, but now I see. Just quickly, um, I love this passage in 1 Timothy, because if you, if you have an irrefutable argument, that's great, but you've got to take it out into the world to make a difference. Having an irrefutable argument inside the walls of the church is great. Unless you live outside the walls of the church and you die without Jesus. You have to be in the world to win the world. You have to be in the world to win the world. So we're not trying to gather people and pull them out of the world. 
We're trying to equip people to live in the world. Because we're not afraid of the world because we have an irrefutable argument in Christ. We're not afraid of a world that says, I don't think there's a God. I don't believe in a God. Maybe that works for you, but I don't need that in my life. That's great. We're not afraid of anything. We're not afraid of anybody. We're not in a, in a war with people. It's not an argument of ideas. We're not trying to get notches on a belt. We're just trying to, to live a contagious life in the world. But you've got to be in the world to win the world. I love how he said that in 1 Timothy He says in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came, can you say it with me again, into the world. Do you know why? Because Jesus believed in the irreducible minimum. Jesus believed that people need Jesus. And so he did what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. He became all things to all people so that by all possible means he might win some people. He put human flesh on divinity and was born in a stable and walked dusty streets of earth to become all things to all people so that by all means, even the shedding of his own blood, he might win some, save some. He came into the world. That's got to be our mentality. I want to get in the world. And in the world, my role is not to come up with a new message. My, my goal is to be a translator of the story. See, Paul wasn't a chameleon and Jesus wasn't a chameleon. And we don't need any chameleons. We don't need people who, when they're hanging out with their golf buddies, it's all one thing and throwing down the beers and talking about this and that and the other and saying things that we'd never say in front of our own children. And then all of a sudden the next day we're kind of, you know, back in a boardroom and everything kind of shifts slightly. And then we come into church and everything shifts a little bit differently. We don't need chameleons. We need translators. And it's a very different picture. Jesus did not come to earth and then change by every crowd he went to. But I'm telling you, he went to every crowd. Oh, come on. He went to every crowd. He hung out with every crowd. But he didn't become every crowd. Because he knew that there was a bigger story on the line. And the story that was on the line was that the irreducible minimum required a clear and compelling purpose. And the purpose was that the message of the gospel get translated to all people. Translating is so amazing and so imperative in the world. I mean, we've traveled around the world and sometimes we go to a country where if I'm going to do what I'm doing right now, I have to have a translator. Has anybody here ever spoken with a translator before with your job or your business or, or whatever? Oh my goodness, you know, but especially if you're me, you know, because the translators are going like this, you know, and he's doing more of this. And every now and then you just get an incredible one. My first trip to Brazil, I had a translator. I thought we were like, I thought we were brothers, you know, from different mothers. I mean, it was amazing. This guy right now would be doing this right now. And you learn as you're translating that you do a little and then they translate. You don't do a paragraph. So I'd say, so the most important thing that we can understand is that Jesus Christ is the message. <laughs> and we're just the translators of that message to the world. And every now and then it breaks down. Ukraine one night. And, and so I say something like, so the grace of God is bigger than all our sin. I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding. This is probably on tape somewhere. I went, really? Wow. So I'm giving this story in Brazil. 
It's a story about being in a Braves playoff game. You've probably heard me tell this way back in the day when the Braves used to be in a lot of playoff games. And um, <laughs> they were playing the Mets. We, we were killing the Mets. Tomlin lived in Houston. He was an Astros fan, and we had just drilled them. And the, no, the Mets are, are beating us. And he's calling me, taunting me on my phone. I'm, I'm, I'm just sending it to voicemail, but he's taunting me on my voicemail. I'm listening to the voicemail, but not answering. You know how that goes? Well, it looks like the Mets are crushing you guys. I'm like, yeah. Well, the Braves come back. They come roaring back. And I love it at the end of the day. And I'm telling this story about how at the end of the game, we win. Fireworks are going off. Turner Field's blowing up. And I just call Tomlin and hold the phone up. I never even said a word. I just let him <laughs> hear it, you know. And I just close the flip phone days, you know. I just close the phone. I'm telling this story. So my translator's over here telling it next to me. And we get to this part, and I say, we're just killing the Mets. And I mean, the people just start rolling in the aisles. I mean, just like falling down, laughing. I can't get the crowd back. I'm right at the end of the deal, and people are literally on the floor. And so I just hold it together, help me, Holy Spirit, get to the end of the deal. And later we get in the, in the deal, and somebody says, did you, did you know what was so funny? I'm like, no, my Portuguese is not you know, as far advanced as I like it to be. Why were people rolling? Oh, the translator was going off, man. He was going off. This is what he was saying. They're translating for me. He was saying, and, and so we were beating the Mets. We were literally ripping the flesh off the body of the Mets. So either we didn't connect on the killing part, you know, like it's a baseball analogy. We don't really kill the other team. We just, or he saw a little moment to have a little fun. So, so we talked later. You see, a translator has to be able to speak both languages really well. You have to be able to speak both languages. Somebody in here has got to know high-end finance. You've got to be able to speak it. But you've got to know how to speak grace, mercy, truth, and Jesus too. Somebody in here has got to be able to speak change-ups, fastballs, curveballs, inside pitches, weight balance, hitting, how to see the ball. But you've got to speak grace, mercy, truth, and Jesus so that you can translate the story. You have to be in sync with the message so that you can translate and deliver the story. Just lastly, number four, our confidence is not in the perfection of our story, but in the power of the story. And that's part of our irrefutable argument. So the confidence isn't, at the end of the day, hey, just put all your hope on me. Our confidence at the end of the day is, you know what, I'm not going to be perfect in walking out my grace story. I'm not there yet, but I still have a grace story. <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't, no, 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 no. I'm not Jesus, but I know Jesus. No, I, th th there's going to be a crack in my story somewhere. I'm, I'm working out the cracks, but I still have cracks in the story. But that doesn't, that doesn't deny in me the fact that there is a story. 
And that story is powerful and real. And I think sometimes we get caught up in this deal that I've got to have a perfect story if I'm going to have a story. The rest is this, okay? Where's the rest in all this? The rest in all of this is that the weight rests on the gospel, not on us. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe it. And that's where the weight rests. That's why you don't have to stress over telling your story of grace to the world. Because it doesn't rest on your story of grace. It rests on the gospel. The weight rests on the gospel. And I tr- trust me, the gospel is power to save. I mean, last night, our, our students, Sharp Top Cove, people already come to know faith the night before. People come to know faith every time they gather. But at the end of our time last night, just giving students a chance, does anybody here want to say, I want Jesus in my life? And 10 students stood up in our student group. Just, it wasn't even an evangelistic message. It wasn't even a gospel presentation. It wasn't even, and so we're all trying to get people to make a decision. It was just God in the place, God's spirit in the house. It was the kingdom come, and people were going, I want this Jesus. I want whatever is in this place and in these people's lives. And every time you offer the gospel, almost every time, people are going to say yes to the gospel. So it's not, the rest is that it's not all on us. It's on the gospel. The gospel is that powerful. And don't let the enemy ever convince you that it's not. Don't ever buy what you see on the outside of people. I'm telling you, they're searching. And they're hungry. And don't ever think, well, the gospel isn't going to work. Well, maybe it didn't work with me and Mr. Brick of Cash in the one hour flight, but who knows what it's doing right now because the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped telling that guy about the story of the gospel since the day we met and flew on that flight. The spirit of the living God has not stopped telling that story to that guy. He was telling him that story before he sat next to me and he's telling him that story after he's sitting next to me. And the next person that came along, he probably went, man, that's weird. I sat next to this really cool guy and his wife on my flight to Cape Town telling me the same thing you're telling me about Jesus. So the wait isn't on us. But the world is waiting on us. So there's rest, but there's also work, people. There is rest, the weight is on the gospel, but there is work because the city is waiting on that gospel to do something in you and me that would bring change. And there's reward. There's rest, there's work, and there's reward. And the reward is that we have before us the hope of seeing many, many people in heaven, in Christ, alive on earth because of our story of grace. Your story of grace. Jesus says, Hebrews 2, for the joy, talking about Jesus, says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He could see us. He could see the church. He could see heaven. He could see people redeemed. He could see the songs of the ages. He could see your story. And he said, for that joy before me, the joy of God's pleasure and the joy of people coming alive, I'm going to hang on this cross. Resting that this work is the work. Working, Jesus said, because the world's waiting for me to give my life, but looking at the reward the whole time. And then just last, this last is this, that our prayer then today becomes Jesus. Our prayer becomes Jesus, change me. Because I desperately need it. And the world desperately needs you. Would you be willing to start praying that prayer? 
Would you be willing to write that down somewhere right now and start praying that prayer every day? Jesus, change me. Because it all ultimately, you know, comes back to us. Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this message today and I'm just, what I'm thinking is I don't really love barbecue. That's what I'm thinking. I'm a mess and I know what church is like, but you know, if you put me in the mix, people aren't gonna look at my life and go, okay, I gotta know what you know. I gotta know who you know. I gotta know what's going on with you. And Jesus, I need, I need, I need an overhaul. My marriage needs an overhaul. My, my, my brain needs an overhaul. My, my finances need an overhaul. Our, our relationship needs an overhaul. I, I, need, I need some supernatural change. But it's not just me, me, me need change, change, change. It's I need change. And I'm understanding that with that, the city desperately needs you, Jesus. And they're not going to get Jesus unless Jesus gets us. They're not going to get Jesus unless Jesus gets us. Because we all came from another church to this church. And we can lose sight that there's a city that's never been to the first one that was alive. They don't even know. They don't even know what we've tasted and seen. So I just want us to lean forward. We've got a few more weeks in this series, but I also want to lean into that prayer together. Jesus, will you change me? I desperately need you. And the world needs you.